Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. Today, I'm joined by Boris Hirsink and Jeffrey Jenkins, who are authors of Republican Party Politics and the American South, 1865 to 1968. This was published in 2020 by Cambridge University Press. It is a really deep and rigorous and fascinating discussion and exploration of what we understand to happen inside the Republican Party in the South following the Civil War. Um, But I'm going to let Boris and Jeffrey talk a little bit about that, as well as to start out with telling us a little bit about themselves and how they came to this particular project. Hi, Boris. Hi, Jeffrey. Hello. Hello. Please do tell us a little bit about yourselves and how you came to this project. All right. I'm an assistant professor at Fordham University, uh, and uh, Jeff and I met at the University of Virginia, where I was a graduate student, uh, and Jeff was my uh, dissertation advisor. Um, And the way we got to the project is essentially we, you know, spent a lot of time talking about different topics, different interests you had. Um, And this topic sort of came up. Uh, Jeff was sort of interested in a specific puzzle about the Republican Party at the time. Uh, and we started talking about, well, how could you study this and how could you uh, try to actually uh, turn that into a research project? And, and uh, Jeff can talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, I'm uh, Jeff Jenkins. I'm the uh, provost professor of public policy, political science and law at the University of Southern California. And uh, I'm also the director of the Bedrosian Center. Uh, as Boris said, we used to um, really sit around and just talk about things a lot. Uh, when he was in graduate school. Uh, we would talk about what we've been reading, uh, the sort of puzzles that we came across. Um, and uh, one of them was um, between 1880 and 1916, uh, the Republican Party got uh, exactly zero electoral college votes from the South, uh, the former, the 11 former Confederate states. And yet the Republican Party allowed those 11 southern states to continue to have representation uh, at their national convention. So one question was why, you know, why, why was this happening? You know, why would the Republican Party continue to allow uh, a region 25% of its convention delegates when there was no chance that they were going to get any electoral success um, from that region? Uh, so it really started as a, as a pretty confined question. Uh, And we answered that question in a journal article that we published in the journal Studies in American Political Development. Um, But as we wrote the paper, and as we learned more about the South during that period, we realized that there was a lot more going on, uh, a lot more to delve into. And really to deal with that well, it was going to require that we actually write a book on the subject. And here we are. And it is, and it is a fascinating and really deep, complex um, analysis of what was going on during that period. And what I found also really fascinating and useful in reading through it, it's not just about national politics; it's about state level politics, it's about local politics, and it's broken up into two different sections to highlight those two different parts, as well as having a mixture of different forms of analysis. So it's a, it's really a nice multi-method um, sort of discussion of what was going on. Um, but I would love for the two of you to talk a little bit about 
um, what that puzzle kind of was beyond these sort of electoral vote absences um, and the delegates to the Republican convention. Um, you talk about how the sort of the GOP itself starts out and there was a debate about whether or not they should have Southern delegates even before the war. Um, so could you talk a little bit about uh, the sort of start of that puzzle? Yeah, so the, the the issue that the Republican Party essentially was facing, and, I, and the Democratic Party is also facing it, and, ha- and both parties still face it uh, to this day in some sense, which is, if you're a national party and you have national conventions, how do you uh, sort of make decisions in a way that uh, incorporates everybody or a subset of the country? And so the Republican Party's problem essentially was that as it was founded as an anti-slavery party, it didn't really have a stronghold in the South. Um, are you going to allow the South to have a say somehow in how decisions are made? And the decision essentially was, yes, all states should have some form of representation at the national convention. And the national convention makes really crucial decisions about who the presidential nominee is going to be, who the vice presidential nominee is going to be, what kind of rules we have as a party uh, and our party platform. Um, and so after uh, the Civil War and after Reconstruction, uh, the Republican Party finds itself in a position where increasingly it's being uh, pushed out of any meaningful electoral competition in most of the South. Um, and yet the states all have a pretty substantial uh, level of representation. Uh, and the puzzle that we started out with, as Jeff explained, was why would a party allow that? Like if you are the Republican National Party, there's loads of parts of the country that are actively contributing to your electoral success. They're giving you electoral votes. They're giving you House seats. They're giving you Senate seats. Um, but the Southern states aren't doing that at all. You know, why would you give uh, these states any type of representation or at least this much representation? Um, and the, the answer we came up with essentially was that uh, uh, these Southern states become, in the eyes of national leaders, uh, rotten boroughs. Basically, uh, a, a set of delegates that the highest bidder can go to and uh through either direct bribes uh, or the promise of jobs, um, buy. And because of that, uh, different presidential hopefuls can go to the national convention and basically come in with a really strong backing of an, a large number of delegates and increase the chance of them winning the nomination. And so one part of the book really focuses on the national element of that, which is that if you are a Republican and you care about who has a majority at the national convention, the South is really important. And if you are the person who controls the South, so you were able to buy the support, essentially, you also want to make sure that those delegates uh, numbers stay high because, you know, you, you paid for them. Um, and what that also did was it, it made uh, uh, control of the uh, national, uh, uh, sorry, state party organizations at the state level uh, relevant to local actors. Uh, and that included introduced a variety of different types of conflicts uh, along racial lines in, in almost all of the states. So uh, I'll just add to that, that, you know, the process for getting to Rotten Burrows was um, somewhat gradual. So when we talk about the, the period from 1880 to um, 1916, it's a process that um, first starts with the Republicans hoping to regain a foothold in the South. You know, it, it was not clear at that early stage whether the Democrats who had regained control throughout the South were going to be able to hold it. Um, by the 1890s, though, um, and uh, the rise of disenfranchising laws throughout the South, which were part of the, the, the eventual rise of Jim Crow in that region, uh, it became clear that the Republicans there were not going to be able to uh, re-emerge in the same form. So initially, uh, one of the reasons why uh, the Republicans were essentially giving the South continued representation was that there was a hope that they could, you know, regain a foothold in that region. Uh, a second reason was that there was a essentially a strong moral um, component in that African Americans were being pushed out of all sort of political representation in the country, and this was the one last bastion of representation they continued to hold within the Republican National Convention. And since the Republicans were the party of Lincoln, uh, the party of anti-slavery, there was a strong normative uh, edge to arguments that, that African-Americans continue to play a role. 
Um, but by the 1890s, the Rotten Borough story becomes the, the main story. It was clear that uh, the Republicans, as they were initially constituted in the South, were not going to be able to reemerge in the same way. And the, the Republican Party that had existed in the South at that point was a biracial party. It was formed uh, uh, as a group of uh, both African-Americans and whites. And by the 1890s, that's called the Black and Tan Faction. Uh, alongside the Black and Tan Faction come the Lily Whites. And the Lily Whites are what they sound like. It was a group of white Republicans who were arguing that in this new South, where African-Americans could no longer participate because of uh, essentially disenfranchising laws, um, the only way the Republican Party could ever come back as a real viable electoral party was to become an all-white party. And essentially what that meant was all leadership positions should be all-white, such that the, uh, the remaining electorate in the South, uh, which was essentially a white electorate, would see the Republican Party as a legitimate party. And during that period of time, what legitimate meant in the white South was a white party. So uh, that's where we really learned a lot when we were writing the Studies in American Political Development article, right? We were answering a, a, a fairly narrow question, but we were learning that there was a, a good deal of battling in the South during this time between two meaningful factions of the Republican Party. And what was at stake was who was going to who was essentially going to control the executive patronage that was coming from the president and there were lots of offices that would be given out to Republican party faithful in the south when a republican was in the white house those could be given out as a currency they could be sold um, they were very valuable so being a republican during this period of time was still meaningful just not in the same way that we think that parties are meaningful in normal periods and and so that question of executive patronage was is also something that we often think about in the latter half of the um, 1800s because the presidency itself was not necessarily that strong a position. And one of the bases for a lot of the capacity of the president was this kind of patronage. Can you talk about how those patronage appointments worked as we're moving into the 1880s, 1890s, um, and with the Republican Party in the South, as well as the Republican Party in the rest of the country? Um, so the we're actually thinking about doing a, a project that sort of delves into this a little bit more uh, moving forward. We, we touch upon it in the book, but essentially the, the system is... Um, if there is a president of your party in the White House, then the local party leaders, so the state party leader, usually the, the RNC or DNC uh, member of that state, um, is the one who sort of su- you know, suggests uh, specific people for appointments. And so if a, uh, a new administration comes in, there's a change of party, a lot of people lose their jobs. And so a lot of jobs open up and uh, the people who... Uh, basically get to decide who the individual people are going to be who take those jobs are the local uh, party leaders. And traditionally, when we think of party machines, that was a pretty uh, crucial component of how the system worked. Um, You basically sell these offices to the highest bidder. The money that comes in, you can then subsequently use as a local party organization to uh, uh, make sure during the next election, uh, you're, you know, effective as a party and you win the next election again, which means that you have access to jobs and sort of the, the machine keeps functioning. What was weird about the South and, and also sort of interesting is that, you know, these Southern uh, Republican Party organizations after Reconstruction largely stopped running candidates. Like in some cases, they will still nominate uh, uh, candidates for gubernatorial elections or House elections. In a lot of cases, those elections are just, you know, they just don't run Republican candidates anymore because they know they're not going to win, certainly as we move into the 1890s and 1900s. Um, And so really what it ends up being is a system where if you are the leader of the state party, um, you still get to suggest people for these uh, patronage jobs. You still get to try to sort of benefit financially of it, but the money subsequently doesn't really go anywhere but you. And so financially, it's really uh, uh, becomes very interesting to be the party leader of one of these rotten borough states, because if you're the person in charge, you get to make a considerable amount of money out of out of these uh, uh, patronage appointments. 
Yeah, and as Boris had mentioned, you know, we're we're starting a new project where we're kind of uh, really trying to understand this process in a more maybe quantitative way, really, you know, discern just how many positions were there in a given election year. And uh, what were those positions paid out of the federal largesse? So we know some things, right? We know that the, the main set of federal positions that were given out as, as part of executive patronage were postmasterships and different classes of postmasterships. We know other things like U.S. Marshals were part of that. Um, and um, those things were very valuable. I mean, just, just going down the list and, and we, we, we find that there was a um, – there was an investigation in the late 1920s, early 1930s in the Senate of what was actually going on in the South during this period. And they collect a lot of testimony from individuals who were part of the process as well as um, politicians during the period of time. And the committee in charge, the Senate subcommittee in charge, collected a lot of quantitative information. And they were given some testimony as to what the individuals who got those positions, say postmasterships, had to give up, had to essentially kick back in order to receive the position. So we're starting to collect that and translate it to quantitative data to really get a sense of well, you know, how much was at stake here. And just from the very early stages of this new project, we're learning you know, quite a lot, quite a lot of money was at stake. Um, and so I'm, I'd be happy to talk to you about the next project when it comes out, but, um, I, I obviously took you in a little bit of a direction that hasn't, isn't quite in this book as much. Um, but I did want to talk about that, that period of time, cause you talk about the fact that, you know, you have a string of Republicans who are elected to the presidency, um, in the late 1880s, 90s, and then into the, to, into the 1900s. Um, but you also have, as you note throughout the book, changes that are going on inside the Republican Party and inside the essentially now growing Jim Crow South. Um, that's changing a lot, not only with regard to the the sort of black and tan faction and the lily white factions within the Republican Party, but also in terms of who's getting to vote, period. And that seems to be a big part of the story in terms of how the the parties were adjusting. Um, can you talk a little bit about that sort of historical context, um, the post-1876 compromise um, or the 1876 Compromise, and how sort of the rights of African-Americans, freedmen, um, were changed and how that impacted what was going on. Sure. So, uh, you know, the, the the story of Reconstruction is, I guess, well-known and, and incredibly depressing, which is after the end of the Civil War, um, to to come back into the Union, Southern states have to comply with a, a number of restrictions and, and uh, requirements set by uh, Republicans in Congress. And so for a very short period of time, um, the, uh, uh, the federal government uh, manages to sort of limit um, uh, voting in the South to black people who previously couldn't vote because they were enslaved, now can vote. Um, and uh, also sort of try to limit uh, the access of white voters there to to the ballot uh, box. And so what we're seeing is that uh, for a short period of time, the Republican Party is incredibly successful across the South. Uh, in most states, uh, I think with the exception of Virginia, uh, the Republican Party has unified control of the, uh, the, the state government, at least for a couple of years. Um, and once uh, white voters come back into uh, uh, the franchise, uh, and there's a lot of uh, terrorism and attacks against black voters uh, that starts to fall apart. And at some point, the Republican Party basically just sort of national Republican Party basically just sort of steps away and, and kind of gives up. Um, and that's when we're seeing a short period of time of like about a decade and a half, two decades, where um, black voters are still allowed to participate. They can still participate in elections. They can still run for office. In some cases, they do win. Uh, but it gets increasingly more uh, difficult and dangerous. And then starting in the 1890s, uh, across the South, uh, white Democrats sort of start to figure out that a more permanent solution to the, the problem in their mind of black voters who aren't voting for them 
uh, is to just disenfranchise them entirely through legal ways. And so we see the rise of Jim Crow legislation at that point. And once that starts to kick in, um, there is a new movement within the state Republican parties to try to get rid of these black leaders. So starting in Reconstruction, uh, pretty much all Republican state party organizations are mixed race. Um, often leaders can be white, um, but usually there are black uh, uh, people relatively high up in the state parties. And in some cases, uh, uh, people, uh, uh, black politicians actually run the state party. So someone like Norris Wright Cuny, who's the uh, leader of the Texas Republican Party for in the 1880s and 1890s, uh, he's a, a mixed race uh, man and he's in charge of, of the actual party. Um, that inspires uh, sort of the counter movement of these Lily Whites who try to kick out uh, these black delegates uh, and black leaders. And one of the things we were trying to figure out in this book was sort of like, how can you systematically measure that? We know that these conflicts happen. Other people have written about them. Uh, uh, Haynes Walton uh, Jr. famously wrote a book about it in the 70s. So this is not new information in and of itself, but there's never been a really systematic way of, tr- of trying to get at um, at what point did these uh, little white uh, um, organizations successfully flip each state party um, and how did that develop over time? And so one of the puzzles we were trying to sort of figure out in, in writing the book was how can you measure this uh, and how can you system- uh, systematically assess one when in each state the change happened and also the broader claim, uh, which Jeff mentioned before, um, made by the Lily White uh, activists at the time, which is that once the Lily Whites take over, the party should do better, given the fact that the electorate uh, becomes entirely white. And the way to do this, and we could talk about this uh, more uh, in a few minutes, I think, but the way to do this would be to try to uh, undertake a massive data collection. Uh, because, uh, as Boris mentioned, there were you know, little nuggets um, in the historical literature. Uh, Paynes Walton's 1975 book, for example, you know, mentions some names of black and tan delegates and some lily white delegates and talks a little bit about what was going on in the individual states, but it was far from systematic. So the way that we thought about, you know, trying to essentially code, you know, the strength of the lily whites versus the black and tans was to try to code who was actually being, uh, selected as delegates to the national convention in each of these uh, presidential election years. And that required us to, A, get the rosters for each state, and then much harder, B, determine what faction they were from. And that came down mostly to, um, you know, what race were these delegates? And that's where that's where the hard work started. And, and that's what my next question was going to be, because this is a multi-method book. You have a lot of APD, but then you have this extensive data set that you put together to try to tease out some of this information. And you reached some interesting conclusions in terms of the timeline for change based on what you found. Can you talk a bit more about how you um, in fact, amassed this data and and coded it and and what that produced in terms of the conclusions that you ultimately reached. Sure. I, I'll talk a little bit about how we collect the data and then Jeff can talk about the, the findings we actually have. So th- the idea actually came from uh, one of our reviewers at studies who, who mentioned it as, as something that we um, might be interested in trying, which is um, so we were able to get lists of uh, each for each convention of all the delegates uh, that were actually seated at the convention. So back in the day, uh, the Republican National uh, Committee would publish this really big book every year uh, of convention proceedings. And it would basically be the transcripts of everything that happened at the convention, all the important votes. And it would also have a list of uh, delegates by state. And the only information included there was the names of the delegates uh, and their hometown, and of course, the state they were from. Uh, and that, that's all there is in there. Um, and uh, one of the things that we were, the, the reviewer suggested and we were able to actually do was uh, use that limited information to try to match uh, those names and locations to uh, original census forms uh, through Ancestry.com. And so for each of these delegates, uh, and there are thousands of them, uh, we went online and we searched for those names in connection with the fact that we knew they were alive in 
you know, a specific convention year and that they were living in a specific town in a specific uh, state, uh, we were able to match them to their convention, uh, to their uh, uh, original census form. And we do a pretty good job of matching that. It's like about 80% of uh, delegates we can match to a form. Um, there's always going to be some drop off. One issue is the fact that, you know, the convention years are not, you know, at the same time as a census, census once every 10 years. So in some cases, there's like a four to six year lap uh, uh, gap uh, between um, when the convention took place and when the most recent census was. So people may have moved away, people may have died, you know, all types of uh, issues can come up. Uh, there's also in some cases uh, one census year in 1890 where the original forms were all basically lost. Um, and so in those cases, there are no original forms uh, to link to. So there's some issues you run into trying to match it. But overall, we get eight, an 80 percent match, which is pretty good. And uh, that allowed us to then for each state, basically uh, for every convention, say what percentage of delegates were black and what uh, percentage of delegates were white. And once we have that data, we can look at the uh, development across all states combined, but also for each individual state, how, uh, you know, how the takeover of the Lily Whites played out at what exact moment did the state flip from being controlled by black politicians to being controlled by uh, white segregationists. Um, and also to test a variety of other issues. Yeah, so we, we can we can measure um, measure things through 1956. Um, and what we find is that there's a lot of variation across the ex-Confederate South. Um, some states essentially go lily white uh, very quickly and don't have any kind of um, uh, slide back at all. So Virginia, North Carolina, and Texas become lily white uh, almost instantly. Uh, another group of states uh, maintain uh, uh, a majority of black delegates through most of the period that we have. Um, Georgia, South Carolina, and um, Mississippi. Uh, Mississippi in particular um, essentially is controlled by a majority black delegates through the end of our period. Um, and then there's a group of states in the middle, right? That kind of go lily white, but not completely, which, you know, continue to um, have a, a small minority of black representatives at the convention. So with that information, um, you know, we could then begin to look at things more systematically and quantitatively. Um, so we have this, this you know, deep uh, data dive and that really took us probably more than a year and uh, included a number of research assistants at both uh, the University of Virginia and the University of Southern California. Um, so, but once we did have that data collection in hand, we could begin to, you know, draw some basic figures, get some sense of what the, the variation looks like across the data and do some more systematic analysis. And, and, and again, this is where one of the conclusions that you talk about in the introduction is um, also sort of the, the trajectory of these delegations and the trajectory of the state with regard to the Republican Party itself. Can you talk a little bit about the, the trajectories that you saw with regard to this internal um, sort of tensions that were going on in each party and even in localities? Um, yeah. So well, I'm not entirely sure what you're, what you're referring to. Um, that basically what you talk about in terms of um, some of the movement, um, the, not only the increase and the decrease of black delegates within the delegation, but also the electoral performance that um, you start to see with regard to the Republican Party um, in the South and in terms of its, its sort of foothold or strength in the South. Sure. So, you know, the Republican Party is not in a great state electorally in the 1890s and early 1900s in the South, right? It's not winning a lot of elections, if any. Um, and the Lily White argument uh, in the 1890s, 1900s, 1910s, 1920s pretty consistently is uh, we need to take over um, once the party, the state party becomes an actual white party in the eyes of voters. 
um, then those voters might be open to voting for us again. But as a, a black party in the eyes of voters, it's just not going to work here. Uh, and in some cases, the, the Lily Whites who are making this argument are themselves pretty clear, hardcore segregationists. In other cases, they might be a little bit more sort of nuanced in their perception of basically being like, well, it's not necessarily our position, but it is the you know political reality on the ground that we're dealing with. And this is what we have to respond to. Um, and so one of the things that, that we do in the book is we try to uh, assess whether that claim is actually true. Right? We know that across the South, the Lady Whites do win. Um, there's not a single uh, state in the former Confederacy that doesn't, in the end, end up under a Lily White control. Although, as Jeff mentioned, there's considerable variation both in the timing and, and the extent to which the, the takeover happens. Um, but the fact that there was variation uh, allowed us to test that basic argument, right? If the, the party becomes more white, as measured by the percentage of, of black uh, convention delegates, um, does that result in the Republican Party doing better in elections? Um, and the answer is yes. In the post-Jim Crow era, uh, as the party becomes uh, more white in terms of national uh, uh, convention delegates from the state, uh, their performance in pretty much all elections, presidential elections, gubernatorial elections, uh, state legislative elections, uh, increases. Um, and not enough to actually start winning elections. So it's not that suddenly the Republican Party, as it reinvents itself as a white party in the South, um, you know, suddenly becomes competitive again. No, but there is a very clear improvement. Um, and in the book, we argue uh, that that improvement has sort of real consequences for uh, the Republican Party and its ability to move south uh, later on. And, um, you know, we begin to see, you know, at the tail end of our data, we begin to see the Republican Party actually begin to win some elections, right? Um, Dwight Eisenhower wins four southern states in 1852 and five in 1856. Um, and... Republicans start to do a little bit better in some parts of the South. Um, so one of the nice things about the variation that we have in uh, the delegate data is it allows us to really get at the issue of how the, how the Republicans are actually doing in terms of vote totals in the 11 Confederate states. And it's, it's a pretty striking dot plot that we have in the book uh, based upon a regression that we do. Um, you know, before essentially disenfranchising laws are adopted. Uh, a, a whiter party uh, is an electoral drawback in the South uh, when the electorate is biracial. Uh, but in the aftermath of disenfranchising laws being passed, when the electorate is almost exclusively white, uh, a whiter party does better uh, in the South. Um, and that's essentially in line with what the Lily Whites were arguing. And, um, you know, this, this gave us a chance to really examine that. And as we talk about in, you know, a couple different sections of the book, um, this was essentially the start of what we see as Republican Party dominance in the later part of the 20th century. It had to start somewhere. Essentially, you're starting from, you know, ground zero in the early part of the, uh, the 20th century. The Republicans were anathema in the South, right? They were the, the party of, you know, Negro domination is what was often yelled by white supremacists at the time. It was the party of, um, you know, Northern aggression during the civil war. And it takes time for those labels to change over time. And the only way that that's going to happen from the Lily white perspective is when, um, white Southerners, the white electorate looks at Republican politicians. They see people who look like them. And that that ultimately doesn't that becomes the story of the Southern strategy, um, as you say in chapter six towards the modern Southern strategy. Um, what is going on during that long period of time when FDR becomes president and kind of scrambles some of the sort of expectations with regard to Democrats and Republicans? Um, can you explain a little bit about? how that shift starts to move towards Eisenhower's, um, some of Eisenhower's success, some of Nixon's success that comes later in the 50s and 60s. 
Yeah, so the, the um, FDR Democratic Party essentially radically changes what the Democratic Party is as as a national political party. So prior to the New Deal, Democrats do pretty poorly for a long period of time. They don't win a lot of presidential elections. They don't generally win the majorities in the House and Senate. Uh, and it's essentially a majority Southern party. So in the South, they dominate. They win there pretty much consistently. Everywhere else, it's hit and miss and mostly miss. Once FDR uh, wins in 32, and we're seeing this really big shift in uh, towards the Democratic Party across the entire country, suddenly the South becomes a minority part of the uh, Democratic Party. And that radically alters uh, a variety of things that put us on the path towards uh, the kind of uh, realignment that we see in the uh, 50s and 60s. And uh, obviously, other people have written extensively about this. Uh, Eric Schickler's book, uh, Racial Realignment, deals with it uh, very extensively. But essentially, uh, black voters in outside of the South become a crucial part of the Democratic coalition. Uh, and as that happens, you get into this really weird, uh, you know, hostile situation where you have a party that has both white segregationists from the South and black voters as pretty crucial parts of the coalition. And for a couple of decades, the party tries to sort of juggle those things together. Um, and eventually it, it, it starts to fall apart. From the Republican perspective, uh, the New Deal is also sort of an interesting uh, moment of reinvention because obviously the Republican Party is doing horrible uh, in presidential elections, in House and Senate elections, and it's trying to sort of desperately reinvent itself and find a way to sort of come up with a new majority coalition. At the same time as the Democratic Party is encountering all these issues with um, the South. And so from the 1940s onwards, the Republican uh, national leaders start to look towards the South and start to think, are there ways that we can sort of try to appeal to these white voters who are growing increasingly sort of uncomfortable with where the Democratic Party is heading? Um, and try to come up with sort of a selling point that uh, these voters can, can, you know, sort of sign up for. Um, and so someone like Eisenhower does very well in the South in, in 52 and 56. Um, you have a really hardcore Southern strategy in the early 60s. Um, so after Kennedy becomes president, the RNC uh, really doubles down on trying to appeal to white uh, Southern voters um, in uh, the 62 midterms and in 64. Um with Goldwater as, as the presidential uh, candidate, that pays off in so far that the party does better in the South than it did pretty much ever before uh, since Reconstruction. Uh, but of course, it also does really poorly everywhere else because it's seen as a very uh, sort of racist campaign and a very uh, hostile and aggressive campaign. And so as we're moving towards the late 60s, the Republicans finally figure out a Southern strategy that sort of works, which is you're appealing to white Southern voters, not by directly talking about race, um, because that alienates voters elsewhere. But you're talking about topics that white Southerners can sort of understand and appeal to and, and respond to, but also white voters everywhere else can. And from 68 onwards, that strategy has been developed um, and the party really relies on it as a way to sort of like appeal to the South or specifically whites voters in the South, uh, but also be effective elsewhere. And one white... One nice little story that we have in the book um, is that um, Southern Democratic leaders were also aware of this realignment that was underway. And one of the things that they thought about was, you know, how can we stave off Republicans from doing well in the South among, you know, the white electorate? And in Mississippi, Southern Democrats, uh, white Southern Democrats, uh, lent their support to uh, Perry Howard, who was uh, the boss of the Republican Party and an African-American. Uh, he was under indictment a couple of different times, and he stood trial a couple of different times for corruption, for essentially you know, handing out uh, uh, federal jobs um, uh, for money. And one of the things that the Southern Democrats did, and one of the things they used their influence to do, was essentially keep him in power. And they were very explicit about this. The reason they supported him was that they thought that a Republican Party controlled by an African-American in Mississippi was no threat to them. The only way the Republican Party could ever be a threat to the Southern Democrats in Mississippi was if it was controlled by white leaders. Um, so white Democrats saw the writing on the, the wall as well nationally, and they tried to do what they could to um, in various states, right, 
in which they still had some control over, to maintain the Republican Party as this um, this organization that really was not going to be viable uh, electorally. And and this again goes to some of the sort of really strong thread that I saw throughout the book that the story of not only the Republican Party during this period, but also the Democratic Party is one that is grounded in race. Um, was that surprising? I assume it's not surprising to the two of you as you were doing the the research, but it seems like it is such a, a keystone foundational element in terms of party politics, not just in the South, obviously, but certainly around these two parties in competition with one another during this period of time in the South. Yeah, I think, you know, anybody who studies American political development probably isn't shocked to find that race is a, is a crucial component of, of American political history. Like that's a, that's pretty well established, I think. Um, <laughs> but one of the things that I think was interesting was the kind of things that, that, you know, related to the Perry Howard story that Jeff just told of that there's these cases where, um, one, the, the really depressing part of the entire history is just how uh, black politicians and black voters are basically used terribly by both sides throughout this, right? Where obviously the Democrats, Southern Democrats uh, want no part of black voters, um, you know, try to aggressively keep them from voting, use violence, use all types of force, et cetera, against them. Um, but also that Republicans relatively, you know, that there is that time period where, where they're sort of trying to manage things and, and hope, you know, hope for the best, but relatively quickly just kind of give up on them and basically just say, well, you know, we can't, we can't fix this. This is what it is. Let's just move on. Um, how the Republican uh, party outside of the South starts to see these black politicians as, um, you know, interlopers, as these people that are clearly, you know, committing fraud, uh, for sale. Uh, they don't add anything of value to the party in their minds. They're just, you know, there and, and they're at best to be tolerated. Um, and that component. And then, you know, the, the, the Lily Whites actually kicking, kicking them out. So it's a very sort of depressing and, and a lot of ways uh, sad story. Um, the other part is sort of the, the and, and we don't really focus on it, but there's these sort of things that pop up um, where how, how sort of white Democrats in the South uh, deal with this, where, uh, as, as Jeff explained, it's it's a benefit to them. Like, it's good for them to have an all-black Republican Party or a mostly black Republican Party. Um, but there's all these, these weird cases where in, in a state like Tennessee, uh, some white Democratic politicians actually make deals with black Republicans. Uh, and, and there's one of the states where a subset of black voters still can vote for a relatively long period of time uh, and sort of like, you know, make an agreement that these black voters are going to help uh, a white democratic machine uh, stay in power. Um, and so those kind of things pop up occasionally and are sort of kind of confusing and, and sort of go against our, our more simplistic idea of Southern Democrats bad, Republicans good on race in this time period. Yeah, so I would just add that, you know, I think somebody reading our book would, would find that, um, you know, our story is that race is fundamental to understanding American politics and uh, that that message is in tune with a lot of messages out there today and a lot of really great books being written. Um, one little piece I think is interesting is that um, after Reconstruction, as Republican leaders were thinking about how to rebuild the Republican brand in the South, uh, and for a period of time, about 15 years, they really thought that they could do this. They thought that they could rebuild a brand around conservatism that there were lots of conservative white Democrats who would be um, amenable to what the Republican Party stood for. And that was on economics. So what the Republicans in the late 1870s and, and early and into the 1880s were trying to do was to try to rebuild the Republican brand around uh, economic conservatism. Um, and that fails, right? They, they're not able to do that. They, they're not able to reach out to white Democrats um, who they think should be more amenable to what the Republican message is than the Democratic message. Uh, jump ahead, you know, a few decades um, and close to a century, and it's really it's conservatism that's allowing the Republican Party to rebuild in the South. But it's not economic conservatism; it's racial conservatism. So what the 
um, the Republican leaders of the 1870s and 1880s got right was that you could rebuild a Republican Party around conservative tenets in the South. What they got wrong was it wasn't economic conservatism that was going to lead the way. It was going to be racial conservative. And and so, I mean, you, you do talk a lot about um, you know, sort of the role that race plays. Are there were there other aspects of the research that you found to be sort of surprising? I, I know I know race is not surprising, but as you were sort of pulling together the data, were there aspects of the research that you found to be surprising in terms of outcomes? Um, I think, yeah, I think so. I think the, what surprises, or at least surprised me, and I, I think is is sort of an interesting idea, is that. Th- the Republican Party in the South, you know, in each of these states, there is a state party organization. In some cases, it's a very bare bones um, thing where it's like, you know, in some cases you have these county meetings and it's literally just two people in a room saying we are the Republican Party. Um, there were court rulings at some point in states that basically said there is no Republican Party anymore as an actual organization because it never, you know, it never competes in elections. So there is no actual party, but there was still, you know, delegates going to conventions and all that. Um, so the fact that you have this, this sort of state party organizations in each state that remains there for a long period of time, even though they're not winning elections, you know, that doesn't really fit with our idea of what political parties are for. And we talk a little bit about that in, in the conclusion where it's just there's a number of sort of like broad, big theories about what political parties are, how they come about, what their goals are and all that. Uh, and generally, they rely on the idea that the goal of the political party is to achieve certain policy outcomes and to help their members get elected. And the Republican Party in the South case in this time period is they don't really care about either of those things. They don't really care about policies and don't really care about electing um, people because they can't. And yet these these party organizations continue to exist and, and have major influence in, in selecting presidents. Uh, and in some cases, policy decisions, uh, and they are quite important to um, to national party leaders. We we showed that pretty much all Republican uh, presidents in this time period uh, cared quite a lot about the South in one way or the other. Um, and so, for a time period that I think largely people would have pointed to and said, "There's nothing happening here for the Republican Party. It's all Democrats. That's the thing we should focus on." Um, we actually found there's a lot of activity and a lot of things going on. And I would just add uh, to that point is, um, you know, we we spend a lot of time looking at newspapers, uh, looking at newspaper reports on Republican uh, going-ons in the South and what national national leaders are thinking about. And we never struggled to find information when we looked at uh, newspapers. Um, Even during this period when the Republican Party is not really an electoral party at all in the South, um, reporters are following what's going on at the Republican um, state conventions in the various uh, ex-Confederate states. And national politicians are very aware of what's happening. And there are intrigues talked about all the time about, uh, you know, what's going on in the South, what's going on between Southern leaders and national Republican leaders. So the story is out there. Um, and I think there's always this, um, this feeling that um, a Republican South is is a possibility in some way, right? Even, even though there's, you know, Republican politicians aren't doing well, you're not, you're not running candidates. There's always this, this possible viability out there that Republican leaders always have at the back of their minds. Democratic leaders are always, Southern Democrats are always fearful about, and newspaper reporters are covering what's happening there. And, and then we, you know, and then we end up during say the Bush, the, W. Bush administration with uh, Senate Majority Leader, Speaker of the House, and the President all being Southern Republicans, um, which again is kind of not what you expected in a lot of the understanding of what was going on at the time a um, hundred years prior. And which would have, you know, which Republican politicians around, say, 1900 would have thought would be crazy. Right. If you would have told them, you know, well, you know, you're going to have you're going to have complete control of this region. And, you know, uh, you know, a couple of generations, they would have they would have flipped their lids. So you you've alluded to the next project, which is seems to be connected to this one. Um, can you talk a little bit about what that next project is? 
Yeah. So in the book, we talk, uh, we give some examples of, of how that sort of like office selling happened, right? So this is a fundamental reason for why people want to be in charge of these state party organizations because they have access to these federal jobs uh, and they can monetize it. And so we come, ac- we came across a couple of uh, specific examples and stories uh, uh, that came out in 1920s in particular, uh, sort of outlaying how much money people were paying, uh, how that sort of system worked. Uh, we don't really have the space or the time to sort of go into it uh, in more detail. Uh, and so one of the things we've been talking about and we're planning on doing in, a couple, in the next couple of months is uh, going through these kind of uh, Senate investigations that took place in the 1920s uh, that really looked at how was the Republican Party in the South, uh, uh, in states like uh, Mississippi, uh, Georgia, uh, how were they selling these offices? How much money were they charging? Um, how was the mechanics of, you know, how do you get from, I would like to have a postmastership to actually getting the postmastership? Uh, and also trying to sort of then see how much money are you, you know, what what is the finances for that for if you are the person who's actually getting that job? Yeah, I think we can, you know, we, we generally have a, you know, as a as a, a group of political scientists, we have a, a general understanding of what corruption means, uh, things like kickbacks, what those are. But they actually be able to get into the nitty gritty and the mechanics of how this works in a specific way is something I haven't seen in a great amount of research. Um, and I think what we have here is the makings of, well, how did the, how did this, the Southern Republican rotten borough system actually work? I think we can tell a nice story and we can actually marshal some quantitative evidence to really give readers the opportunity to see just what was at stake here? How much money was actually, you know, flitting around the South at a time when Republican presidents were in control of the White House? And to what extent was, um, to what extent were those executive uh, appointments actually monetized? How much was captured uh, in the corrupt system that was in place? Well, I hope that the two of you, once the book is done, will come back on the New Books and Political Science podcast and talk to me about it because I'd be really intrigued to also read that book. <laughs> yeah, I think we're talking about articles right now. Maybe okay. a, maybe a long article that we would write on this, <laughs> but but you know we. Last time we started with the long article and, and realized, wow, there's a book in here somewhere. <laughs> um, so, so we'll see. We're both, we're both, you know, I can speak for myself. We're both young enough that we can, you know, <laughs> we can, we can look ahead and, and say that we have, we have lots of time to, to let this kind of play out. Um, and we'll see. Okay. So, that sounds like a deal. I'm not others, but yeah. <laughs> Um, I want to thank Boris Harsink and Jeffrey Jenkins for joining me today to talk to me about Republican Party politics in the American South, 1865 to 1968, and a little bit more than that, as we've we've discussed. Um, this was published in, by Cambridge University Press in 2020. I assume it's available at the Cambridge University Press website. Any particular online retailer, brick and mortar store that you want to shout out? Uh, I don't think so. Not in my, not in my experience anyway. All right. Well, just send people to the Cambridge university press website. if They want to get a copy of the book. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks Lily.